forge your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Doc. Yeah, oh man, it's good to be back. I'm excited to talk about the book today. Yeah, well, we we just talked about the book last week. Well, actually, we just talked about it, you know, earlier, but <laughs> yeah. it was released last week. So you have a new book out, uh, yeah. and it's pretty exciting. Uh, Forge your inner armor, and uh, we talked about it last week, and you can learn more about it in the show notes, uh, and you can hear the whole story of how the book was written and what uh, it's about and what uh, Doc hopes to accomplish with it if you listen to last week's episode. But it was kind of interesting because as we worked on the book together, typically, you know, I guess, you know, Doc, you've built a lot of houses, but, you know, when you're building a house, you get to the end, all the finish work, right? And so, you know, typically we get to the end of the book and we, one of the last things we do is say, well, uh, the dedication and the acknowledgements. Yeah. So, I, you know, I said to Doc, okay, who, who do you want to dedicate the book to? Um, and you know, somebody will say to my darling wife or my mom or my dog or whoever. And then I said, now, who do you want to acknowledge? And it's interesting because typically the acknowledgements list this whole, you know, list of people from, yeah, my mom to my third grade teacher yeah. encouraged me, <laughs> right. To the, right. You know, to my high school coach to blah, blah, blah. And then all the people who uh, edited it and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it goes on this big, long list of 50 people, like the credits at the end of a movie. So just telling the listeners this thing, I, I reach out to Doc and I'm like, okay, you know, the book's done. We got to have the, the acknowledgements page. Um, who do you want to do? So you need to send me the list of, of all of the people, the 50 names or whatever. And I don't hear from him for a day or so. Yeah. And then I get back this thing where he says, I, I think I want to do something different than that. So I was like, oh, okay. So I'll let you, I'll let you take it from there. Cause you wanted it to go in a completely different direction. Yeah. And, um, I can just remember that. Cause at first I did go through all the lists of people, you know, like there's been all the different people in my life that have shaped my life. And, and as I started to go through the list, I'm like, there's no way I could to describe and even put in words what these people have done in my life that have shaped my life. So that was like, that fell short pretty quick uh, when I started to think the impact uh, that family and friends and relatives and colleagues and all the different people. I was like, that's not working. And so I remember uh, Amy and I, we went for a little walk and um, she's really the smart one of the two of us. And I said, hey, I'm kind of stuck here. And and so we were sitting out by the, um, we lived here on the St. John's River in Jacksonville and sitting on the seawall there. And we started talking about, well, what is this book really about? And uh, we said, you know, it's really about these people that came before us and that we just have this wonderful opportunity to pull this together and tell their story. And those people, if they lived in, you know, 2023, they'd be doing this with the technologies we have, with what we know. And so, um, you know, I started to think about people like 
Pavlov and uh, who, you know, started this whole understanding of looking at the body and unconscious responses, you know. Well, I'm going to let you cite the list in a minute, but okay, gotcha. uh, okay. Now we'll go through it here, but I, I, I want to come back to the big idea because what you came yes. back to was this big idea of acknowledging everybody. Yeah. And I remember you said that and I was like, um, okay. And the first thing that came to my mind is this classic quote by Isaac Newton. Mm-hmm. So Isaac Newton, um, and you know, who discovered the laws of motion, this great physicist and, and oh, by the way, just along the way, he invented calculus uh, <laughs> because he was trying to figure out some mathematical problem and, and the math wouldn't work. So he invented a new form of math. Uh, somebody came to Isaac Newton and they said, well, uh, you, you, you know, your accomplishments are so amazing, right? And his famous line is, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders mm. of giants. And I shared that back with you, Doc. And you go, that, that's it. That's really it. I want to talk about standing on the shoulders of giants. And so you said, well, there's three categories of mm-hmm. giants that I want to acknowledge, like a three-legged stool. And so what we ended up doing with acknowledgements is saying, you know, um, at Royer Neuroscience and Inner Armor, you know, the team are integrators who kind of apply all of these great insights and inventions that have come before and bring those together and apply them in this new time, in this new century. And so you said, well, there's three categories of these people. And so I want to walk through those three and have you talk about why those individuals were so important and formative for you and inspiring. And the first of the the three categories were the pioneers in neuroscience and psychology who reframed our understanding of the brain-body connection. And so I'll let you go from there and talk about who those were and why. Can you say the phrase for us one more time about standing on the shoulders of giants? Yeah. If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm. And the first are the pioneers in neuroscience and yeah. psychology who over the course of history reframed our under, especially recent history in the last couple hundred years, have reframed our understanding of the brain-body connection. And there were three individuals in particular yeah. that you identified. So I'll let you yeah. run with Definitely. those. Yeah. And as we get into it, I want everybody out there to think about, you know, you've had giants in your life. Uh that you're not just here, just out of a vacuum, right? And we do need to step back uh, and acknowledge the shoulders of the giants before this, whether that was an uncle or a father or a mother or grandmother, pastor, uh, second grade teacher. But, um, you know, let's be real with ourselves. You know, it's, it's the relationships that kind of built into this. And these people, while I never met them, they paved the path for us. And, uh, you know, in psychology um, and physiology, uh, you know, Pavlov is really uh, just such a huge uh, person in all of this and his understanding, what he brought to the arena of science about our understanding of how unconscious processes in the body work physiologically. Okay. Um, the one for our listeners who may not be familiar with that name, the sort of one sentence Wikipedia on him yes. is Ivan Pavlov. He uh, 
born in 1849, died in 1936. So kind of spanned that late 19th century, early 20th century. He was a Russian neurologist, psychologist, and physiologist. And again, his sort of Wikipedia uh, claim to fame is that he discovered the principles of classical conditioning through these experiments with dogs. And some of us, maybe from high school biology class or whatever, learned about Pavlov's dogs. You, we want to tell that story and a little bit how that fit into his accomplishments? Yeah. And I think it's important. That's really what we all know, you know, Pavlov for, or when we think of a Pavlov's dog, um, we think of Abel and saliva and how he paired that. And we'll get into that in a second. Actually, it wasn't even Abel, <laughs> but, um, you know, the kind of folklore is that it's Abel, but I think you got to go back even further uh, that Pavlov grew up in a home where his father was uh, an Orthodox minister. He went into, he planned to be a minister like his father. I think he had 11 uh, siblings. Uh, At seven, he had an extremely traumatic event where he fell off a wall um, and they didn't know if he was going to live. And he wasn't really able to start school because of this disability until he was about 11. Um, and, um, but when he did get into school, he kind of took off. He, he did go the seminary route for a little bit and then realized this wasn't what he wanted to do. So he started to start study math and science. And he really became intrigued with the body, the human body and observing kind of the processes with the body. And I think the way I would see Pavlov is he was the one of the first people to come on the screen, uh, come on the scene where he was actually giving us or trying to develop kind of a dashboard or a way that he could see the body. And so he had developed different things with the stomach where um, he would have like these tubes that would go out of the stomach uh, kind of into a glass tube where he could see what the stomach was doing during Mm. various times of digestion. He also did this with the heart and the circulatory system where he would kind of develop these uh, ways to observe what the body was doing outside of itself through these glass tubes and different things like that. Well, um, he got onto this whole uh, digestion thing and started to be... Uh, developed this device where he could see how saliva was being produced or not being produced in dogs. And so he could see outside of there. So he developed this tube that he could see when the saliva was producing or not producing. And he started to realize that they were doing this based on different things going on. So when they were um, in a more parasympathetic, which we've talked a lot with on this episode, right? Or on our podcast, right? When they were in parasympathetic, uh, which is the moment that we digest food, they would start to salivate. If their nervous system was in sympathetic, there would be no saliva present. So he started to see the body is actually doing all these things under the surface that are reflective of what's going on in the environment. I mean, that's pivotal. That's really pivotal thinking. And, you know, we all kind of assume that now, you know, well, this is going on, so my heart races. Or this goes on and, um, you know, I get sleepy. Uh, 
but he was starting to observe these physiological responses. And so he developed, um, he wondered if he could take an unconscious response like salivation prior to food being presented. So what would happen is when they would start mixing the food, the dog, before it even started eating, you could see saliva being produced in this glass tube, which was amazing. It's like, oh, every time we pull the food out, there's saliva in, in this kind of external glass tube from the dog, right? So he started to wonder, well, could I pair something with that that would also cause them to salivate, even though that normally that stimulus wouldn't cause the dog to salivate. And so he started to use like a, a buzzer and various different things. It wasn't just one thing. And every time they would open the food or present the food, they would present the buzzer at the same time, which normally doesn't produce saliva. Actually, a buzzer, which may be a little bit more sympathetic, should shut down saliva. But then they would do that over and over and over again to the point that they could take the food away and all they'd have to do is the buzzer and the body would unconsciously start to make saliva, uh, which is a nervous system response. Well, that became our the beginning of our understanding of all these unconscious behaviors, habits, things that we develop when we pair things, reward systems with what we do. So that's known as classical conditioning, yes. right? The, the Pavlov's dogs, the bell or the buzzer causing the saliva, right? And then the second person you mentioned is also known for a certain kind of conditioning, but uh, you can explain the difference. The second one that you mentioned was B.F. Skinner. His dates are yes. 1904 to 1990, so pretty much through the, his, his major works for the middle part of the 20th century. And he was an American psychologist, and he innovated the use of operant or instrumental conditioning to strengthen behavior. So uh, Pavlov is what's called classical conditioning, and Skinner was operant or instrumental conditioning. You want to explain the difference yes. there and how he uh, played a, such a huge impact in your career? Yeah. So, I mean, as you mentioned, Skinner is an American psychologist, and he's uh, currently known as the most famous ever American psychologist uh, with the work that he's done. Our understanding of how reward systems work uh, across all environments, occupationally, academically, parenting, all kinds of things come out of the operant conditioning world where you reward or rewarding behaviors uh, when they happen and different, what he would call schedules of reinforcement. So, um, you know, what works better to reward it every single time, to reward intermittently, the levels of re reinforcement. And so um, this whole reward system uh, really became kind of a, a massive paradigm at which we look at all behaviors and true behaviorists, you know, truly feel that everything's just based on reward systems. And to some level, when we look at things, um, you know, really look at why you do things. And many times there's either some type of emotional, psychological reward, or there's a tangible reward for doing that. I mean, I, I do like to get paid for work, right? And that shapes my behaviors. And so 
B.F. Skinner kind of set the tone for we can change behaviors and how the brain and body works through reward systems by rewarding at the right time, uh, which is going to lead into a lot of things that happen in the biofeedback world where we're literally able to change whether we're in a sympathetic stress state or relaxed state through various forms of reward systems, which is called operant conditioning. So some listeners might be asking, why are we talking about this on the Inner Armor podcast where we talk about professional sports and all kinds of other interesting things, right? Well, a lot of your uh, methodologies, a lot of what you do in Inner Armor and with Royer Neuroscience is using these techniques developed by Pavlov and Skinner to reinforce or condition our nervous system to respond in certain ways. And that's the whole biofeedback, neurofeedback, other kinds of things you're doing where you're saying, hey, these are desirable uh, neurophysiological responses. How do we reinforce those so that our performance is more predictable? Right? Exactly. Uh, you know, you could, an athlete could develop uh, a classical conditioning response to um, a certain stadium that he plays in, you know, where uh, he has all these physiological changes because uh, negative things have happened. It's not the stadium that causes that, but he has that kind of saliva response, right? Um, where he gets anxious in certain situations or at the free throw line or over a three foot putt versus something else where these physiological things that Pavlov taught us, uh, we realize uh, can be conditioned or changed. And we know that we can change those responses. And what helps us do that is operant conditioning, which Skinner you know, brought into play in the 50s and uh, still has huge impact on how we shape our behaviors. You know, it's interesting. You bring up the sports thing there. I, I was having a conversation with... Um, my friend yesterday, because we played golf the other day and uh, I didn't play as well as I had hoped to play that day. And it was interesting because I said to him, you know, I'm done going home and spending all night thinking about my bad shots because I feel like what it does is it simply reinforces the negative. Yes. What I wanted to go is go home at night and spend my night dwelling on my, the best shots I made because I want to reinforce or groove the positive. Now, in a much more sophisticated way, that's kind of what you do, is using, using biofeedback, neurofeedback, and other techniques to uh, reinforce positive responses, positive behaviors, positive accomplishments, and not reinforce the negative, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And to be able to see that stuff, right? It's It's... One thing to kind of feel it or sense it, but to be able to read it, like Pavlov was seeing the saliva, right? And he knew, oh, they're in a parasympathetic response or no saliva, they're in a sympathetic or stress response. And so we want to create physiological dashboards for not just athletes, but for everybody to see what is my brain waves? What is my, the electrical current in my brain doing? What is my heart doing? 
What is my breathing doing? What are my hormones doing? And seeing that dashboard that's very sophisticated so that we can then judge what's going on under the surface and um, start to groove in those more positive responses while we're engaging in sports or work or whatever that is to teach those to connect with those environments versus be environments that produce negative things in us. So I was trying to explain this to my buddy the other day because, you know, you we've done several episodes on the neurophysiology of elite golf and talked about some of the world's best golfers that you've worked with and some of, you know, the elite college players that you're working with now and whatnot. And I was trying to say, look, it's more than just saying, hey, on hole number six, I hit that nine iron and it really worked out. You know, it ended yeah. up, you know, a foot from the cup. Well, that just worked out. Um, but I said, what really, what Doc is doing with Inner Armor is by, if, if, if he was out here and I was hooked up to EEG and the other kind of monitors, it's not just that that, that ball ended up a foot from the pin. It's what was my brain and my body doing when I hit that good shot? And how do, I, how do we reproduce those brainwave patterns, those nervous patterns, those power patterns, those focus patterns, right? Those precision patterns. That's the thing, because there's a lot of ways that that shot could not work out. But what you're really doing is going upstream and looking at what's going on inside, not just the outcome. Yes, and the upstream. So let's say we went all the way back to Pavlov, late 1800s, early 1900s, and we had this glass tube where we could see how much you're salivating or not salivating when you're over your putt, yeah. okay? Right. So what's going to happen with the anxious golfer is that tube is going to become completely dry. Why? Because that's a measurement of your nervous system being in sympathetic. Anybody that's been in public speaking or doing any, do anything and you get a dry mouth, you know, and you're like, you have cotton mouth. We used to call it a lot, you know, where it's, it's just dry. That's because you're in a sympathetic state. But we could all the way back to Pavlov he was giving that us that sign of you can measure these things in people, in dogs at that moment, but also in people. And I could see who, what do I want my golfer to be doing when he's over the putt in that glass tube, in a sense, like Bavavon. It should be full of saliva because that means he's relaxed, he's calm, he's producing brainwave patterns that are creative, which will not happen if the tube is dry. Okay. So we don't use glass tubes and saliva. <laughs> we use more sophisticated measures now, but they're all, they're all connected to the same thing. So looking at your electrical current across your skin, your body temperature, what your heart's doing, breathing, uh, EEG, all of the visual patterns, these are all like windows into your inside that is upstream that we must learn to get mastery and control of and not let those things go south on us. And now we can't perform because our nervous system is in this sympathetic fight flight state. Okay. So of the three names that you mentioned as huge influencers and inspirations to you from the field of psychology, psychiatry, neuroscience, the, the first was Pavlov. The second was Skinner. The third was somebody that we've talked about. We had a whole episode uh, dedicated to, and that was Hans Selye. 
1907 to 1982, he was a Hungarian-Canadian endocrinologist who changed our understanding of how environments and situations create biological responses. And he was the first one to use the word stress uh, to describe this effect. So uh, talk a little bit. I know we spent a whole hour talking about Cellier once on another episode, but talk a little bit about how that contributed, uh, how he was one of the giants uh, upon whose shoulders you stand stood. Yeah. I mean, we have to realize that you know, a hundred years ago, people weren't seeing the world like we're seeing it right now. Nobody used until 1950, nobody would ever use the word stress for a human being. Like that doesn't exist. Like the idea that you could experience an environmental stress that would impact you physiologically. And Selye was the one who came on the scene through general adaptation syndrome and these different things. He taught us that the environment does shape our physiological. Like in his studies, he would see that these animals would have enlarged adrenal glands. They would have ulcers in their stomach lining. They would have decreased immune systems, all because of changing the environment by adding more sound or temperature changes or chemical changes. And that really gave us insight into there's more going on than us just us in the world, the world impacts us and the choices we make with the amount of stress that were introduced. And there's a balance there in stress. Cellier also taught, taught us that stress is good. There's a good stress, but there's also a distress, right? And um, finding that balance is super important because stress can make us stronger, but st- stress can also kill us uh, and will kill us. So, he really brought that into the, uh, we, we lay these things together and all of a sudden we start to get kind of a tapestry of things that start to make a lot of sense why the guy misses the free throw with two seconds left, you know, or uh, why I can't come up with that new idea or they ask me the question in the board meeting and I just go blank. Like, these are all based on things that we've learned over time. And we can also, with technology, reshape those things. So speaking of stress, there was one other name that you mentioned in the acknowledgments as another giant upon whose shoulders you stand. And that is a, a guy, I was going to give his dates, but uh, he uh, is still with us. Yes. So we don't have the, the end date. Um, but his name is Robert Sapolsky. And he is an American neuroendocrinology researcher who has made invaluable contributions to understanding exactly how stress contributes to disease. And he wrote a very famous book, which you're going to talk about, I know, uh, because you like to talk about this book. Because when I first met you, we talked in the last episode about how we first met 12, 13 years ago. And in that first meeting, you inverted my understanding of this whole field. And one of the things you did in that very first meeting was uh, turned me on to this book by Sapolsky. And that book was a, wow. I mean, that really was a game changer for me to understand this field and to begin to get you know some insight into where you're coming from. So why don't you tell us about Robert Sapolsky? Yeah, uh, fantastic. Life-changing. You know, a lot of times uh, people ask me, you know, where did you go to school and get all this information that you're using today? And uh, 
I, I didn't. I really got them from uh, picking up these resources along the way. And if I'm, you know, totally honest with our listeners, uh, my wife told me for about two years I needed to read why zebras don't get ulcers. My wife's a nurse and she's also my business partner. And she's like, you got to read this book. It's going to change everything. And this was back in the late 2000 or uh, early 2000s. And I finally read the book and you know what it did? It changed everything. Everything that we're talking about, the autonomic nervous system, it's parasympathetic, sympathetic stress, the ability to change these things, how they move up and down how the systems of our body, our endocrine system, our circulatory system, our respiratory system respond to the autonomic nervous system, how we make energy. All these things that I talk about is just really built off the shoulders of people like Sapolsky, which you've got to read Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Yeah. So so real quick, right? Yeah. I mean, because this book, and we were putting in a major plug for the book, yeah. but like, like you said, Amy, Amy told you you had to read it for two years. And then when I first met you, the first free meeting, you said, I got to read this book. And so we've been talking about this book for a long time. Robert Sapolsky, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And you want to just give us a quick 30-second summary? Because it's the, the, the title of the book is a question, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. What, what's the answer and what does that mean? Yeah, so what he talks about is that... Um, we have our, our nervous system, our autonomic nervous system, which... Uh, manages the electrical current in our body. And what it does is this autonomic nervous system uses my senses to decide how much energy I need. So if I see a lion, I'm going to go super, super fast and go into something called sympathetic. Um, and then after I see the lion, I should go into parasympathetic and relax. Uh, but what happens in most humans is we don't really encounter lions, but we create lions in our mind, you know, whether that's my 401k or how I'm doing my job or relationships. And we get stuck in this crisis state all the time, which creates almost, if it doesn't make everything worse, it creates all these stress-related illnesses in people like ulcers and cardiovascular disease and obesity but in the book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, he, he brings up the question, zebras have to deal with lions all the time. But what the zebra does is when it's done, the chase is over, it goes and relaxes and recovers. It doesn't sit there and worry about the next chase. The reason why we're sick as a culture and getting sicker is not because we're under more stress than we've ever been. It's because we're worrying about things so much that it's like we're being chased by a lion and therefore we are getting ulcers, obesity, cardiovascular disease. It's a great book. We decided to do it a little bit different because it is a little bit of a longer book. And so uh, I've had many very committed listeners and people that I've worked with that have only gotten a third of the way through just because it's longer. So we said, hey, let's, let's make a book that's a little bit shorter that could describe some of these things that you could get through in just a couple hours. Uh, the audiobook is only two hours and 40 minutes, I think. So on a long plane flight, you could listen to it. So some of the same principles that Sapolsky talks about are in there, but those principles have really shaped my career. Uh, Sapolsky never really gives us a full answer in his book, like what do we do about it? But the science of it really got me intrigued to, to then answer the question, what are we going to do about it? And inner armor and royal neuroscience are really about reshaping the autonomic nervous system.
Yeah. And beginning to manage that HPA axis, right? The hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis, and cortisol in the system and everything else that adrenaline and how, how that drives us. And yeah, first time, you know, that's supposed to be, and as you say, what we try to do in this new book that we, we just did is to basically lay that out for people in a hundred pages. So, okay. Uh, in the acknowledgements, you, you said there's three categories of pioneers. And the first were the pioneers in neuroscience and psychology who helped us to understand the brain-body connection. The second set of giants that you wanted to acknowledge are the pioneers in biofeedback technology. Okay? And we, we talk in the book about how just as a pilot, an airplane pilot, uses an altimeter and an airspeed indicator to fly the plane better, right? Because got to know how fast you're going and how high you are, right? So by watching those instruments, you go, okay, I'm at this many feet, I'm at this much airspeed, and then he can adjust, yes. uh, make adjustments along the way by monitoring those instruments, right? And in the same way, uh, biofeedback or bio and neurofeedback data and technology allows us to monitor how our body is doing as we go in real time, and to make adjustments. And so you acknowledge three people in that category. And the first is the German physiologist Hans Berger. His dates are 1873 to 1941. And he developed the first electroencephalography or EEG meter or EEG monitor in 1924. Uh, you want to talk about that? Yeah, uh, just it's just fascinating to think about how all these people merge together to where we are today, um, and what people like Pavlov and Skinner and uh, Salye would have done if they had all this equipment. You know, uh, it's in instead, my hands. instead of tubes <laughs> with saliva. In, I mean, that's kind of with a dog. That's pretty gross, but right? yeah, like, it's a lot more sophisticated. Yeah, yeah, we don't have to be on the golf course with uh, tubes of saliva, but. Um, so Hans Berger, very interesting. In uh, World War One, he was um, in the cavalry uh, side of the army, and um, he got thrown from a horse early on this early 1900s. And um, while he was on the ground, there was uh, some huge cannons that were being transmitted by packs of horses, and this. Uh, cannon on wheels almost completely rolled over him and killed him. But somebody right at the last minute pulled him away and saved his life. Um, and he talks about how this was such an impactful experience. And um, at that moment, I think a hundred miles away, his sister felt something bad had happened to her brother and wrote a letter to the commander of uh, his unit and wanted to check on her brother, felt like something was wrong, something bad had happened. And when they kind of put all these pieces together, she had that experience uh, right at the same time that he almost was killed. So that got him very intrigued about, do humans communicate telepathically, okay? <laughs> and um, that really was the beginning of his journey to develop what we now use as an EEG, which is a very uh, commonly used medical device. It's in every hospital that exists on the planet, probably. And uh, it was the reading of electrical current. But what's very interesting, like many things in life, um, 
that wasn't really the path that he was going down. He was trying to figure out how maybe we could be communicating telepathically. So, so he was measuring these these uh, electrical currents in, in the brain so they could figure out if we were like beaming thoughts yes. across the, you know, across time and space or whatever. But what he did does is sort of like, like accidentally discovers brain waves and brainwave activity. <laughs> activity yeah. yeah. Which is really funny because the, the first, when he came out with this, he discovered the alpha waves, which are between the eight and 12 hertz. And as we move on, other waves are discovered like betas and deltas and thetas and SMR. But he discovers these waves. And a lot of people were kind of skeptical. What is this? But he didn't really understand electric. He wasn't an electrical engineer. So he didn't understand all the electrical components of that. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that it kind of all got pieced together. Like this is a legit device that can show us things that in the brain that currently, even to this day for diagnosing seizure disorders, you use an EEG, um, multiple leads on the head. But it was developed by Berger. Uh, and um, unfortunately, the end of his life was kind of a very sad ending. Um, but he had this moment in time where he developed something that that technology enables us to literally see what the brain is doing in real time. We can see the electrical current in the brain with an EEG. Wow. Okay. And then the the second person that you acknowledge in this category in terms of of pioneers and biofeedback or neurofeedback is another gentleman who we don't have uh, dates for because he's still with us. Uh, his name is Barry Sturman. And actually in the book, we tell his story yes. in chapter eight of the book, but he combined EEG technology with operant conditioning to sort of uh, optimize, if you would, brainwave frequencies. You want to tell Barry Sturman's uh, story a little bit here? Yeah, very, very fascinating because we talk about building on the shoulders of giants, right? Well, he couldn't have done any of the work he did in the late 60s, early 70s at UCLA without the EEG that um, that uh, Berger had developed. And he wouldn't have the concept of, well, could I reward the brain, reward the electrical current in the brain so that it actually be changed or give me more of that behavior without the work of uh Skinner, right? And so he was combining these two things in the late 60s. Uh, so Skinner's in the 50s, you know, you got Sturman in the 20s to say, I think we can change the volume of electrical current in different frequencies of the brain with reward systems. And so he started rewarding cats that whenever they would get into a state of very calm and focus, which is what they do when they are hunting, um, that he would reward them every time the EEG got into that state and could literally change the amount and the timing of when they would release the specific electrical current, which in sports we know of as being in the zone or a flow state. So this is the beginning of when that cat is in that perfect hunting state where it's not so anxious, it's not overexcited, but it's super focused. That's the same as uh, the, the guy hitting the three-pointer one after another. And it's like, just give me the ball, right? That is the Sturman, what's called SMR activity in the brain. The reason it's called SMR and not alpha, delta, those kind of things. It wasn't discovered until 40, 50 years later from Berger's discovering alpha. 
Um, but that was the beginning of we can literally change the brain waves that are associated with different medical and psychological illnesses. Brain waves related to anxiety, we can operately reduce. Brain waves related to sleep, we can operately increase so the person can sleep better. This is phenomenal technology that Sturman uh, came up with that now has become more advanced uh, to the point that we can interface that electrical current with almost anything. Currently, we have a patent on uh, the ability to interface the electrical current with whatever you're watching on Netflix, which is over the top. Like I can watch a show, but I'll only watch it. The show will only play when the electrical current in my brain is not releasing stress brain activity and is in the zone. So I can literally operately condition being in the zone more. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about that, again, chapter eight in the new book, yes. uh, we also have a video on our YouTube channel called Uncommon Focus, where we tell a little bit of that story. Uh, but that brings us to the third category. So you said there are three categories of giants that you wanted to acknowledge in the acknowledgments of the book. The first were the psychologists and psychiatrists and neuroscientists. The second were the biofeedback and neurofeedback pioneers. But the third sort of leg of the stool, a third leg of the stool would be the pioneers of the personal computer revolution, yes. uh, interestingly enough. And I remember when you told me that, I went, okay. Uh, but you said you want to acknowledge people uh, who, who really made this technology usable. So we talked about, uh, you know, the Bill Gateses and the Steve Jobs and the Wozniaks and these kinds of things. You want to talk a little bit about why the personal computing or personal technology revolution, why you wanted to acknowledge that in the acknowledgements to the book? Yeah, it's, it's so important. Like when Sturman developed this technology at UCLA, it's in this massive, massive computer that um, nobody would have available to them. Uh, and the reason why you need like a supercomputer back then is because you have to reward these things in real time. Your brain waves are running at a really fast clip over 200 miles an hour. And if I'm not rewarding the brain wave right at the exact moment and it's three seconds behind, I could end up rewarding the wrong frequency. The same with other physiological things like heart rate and skin conductance and body temperature is latency is crucial to change. So if I have too much latency, the time from when the neurophysiological event happened upstream and the reward or the negative reinforcer doesn't happen at that exact moment, then it's very difficult for the brain and the body to figure out, well, what do I need to do differently? And I can even remember in the uh, late 90s, some of the computers we were using just weren't fast enough to be able to keep up with the type of reinforcements we were wanting to do. Back then, we would use little three-minute animations that you would have to watch over and over and over, like a flower opening. Now we can watch Netflix in real time with my brain operating Netflix with the frequencies in my brain. That couldn't happen 20 years ago. Yeah, to give a more humble example of this, of, of this principle, you know, you, you take somebody who their dog makes a 
makes a mess in the house, right? Um, and you come home from work and your yeah. dog pooped in the house two hours ago and you come home and yell at the dog. And the dog can't figure out exactly what he's being yelled at. Exactly. Because you clocked in the door and he wagged his tail and he jumped up and he's happy to see you and you're yelling at him about something that he did hours ago. And so that's that sort of latency. You're not reinforcing or, you, you know, you're, in a sense, you're not, you're not, he's not getting the lesson. He's not associating you yelling at him with what he did three hours ago. He's associating that when you walk in the door and he jumps up wagging his tail, he gets yelled at. So in the same sort of way, this sort of latency problem is really huge. And to your point, as, as the personal computing revolution became possible, it became possible for you, Dr. Royer, to found RNS and NeuroCore and InterArmor and all of your companies where you're being able to create portable technology that can be yeah. used on the golf course at the, you know, at the NBA facility, at the NFL facility, in somebody's office, in their home, which we'll talk about in a future episode, to be able to uh, begin to create these conditioning, neurofeedback conditioning cycles in real time at the instant to reinforce the optimal brain and physiological patterns, right? Yeah. I mean, if the speed of the computer allows us to keep up with the brain and the body to the point that I can take an NBA point guard, we've done this many times, and over the loudspeaker, they can play their favorite track of music that they want to listen to. And we have their brain through a mobile EEG uh, hooked to their headband that they're wearing. And their brainwave is running the music while they're doing shoot around. And the moment the music stops, we have them stop shooting because we know they're not in the zone. We can literally adjust any electrical device in real time uh, to keep up with the brain to get immediate feedback. It's just amazing. But that would not exist without these people making things run faster for us. So it's not just that we can play Candy Crush a little faster or whatever game it is, but we're literally able to reshape neurophysiology that Pavlov only could dream of or imagine if he had this stuff oh my world oh I, I have no idea what he would have created but you know now it's in our hands we're no Pavlov but we're able to merge all these things together and it's just a it's just a privilege to have all these giants come before and lay this out for us and we're just you know humble servants kind of pulling it all together and saying, guys, you were right on to something. And now let's merge these highways together to really optimize human behavior. Well, and who knows what comes next? So I want to read the last two sentences of the acknowledgments in the book. Uh, it says, progress continues. And every year there are more discoveries and inventions. My team and I will continue to innovate how we integrate and apply the best of what science and technology offer to help you become dynamically resilient and perform at your potential. Boom. Boom. Love it. That's your commitment. <laughs> <laughs> well, dear listeners, if you want to learn more, go to forgeinnerarmor.com and uh, you'll find information there about the company and working with Dr. Royer in a variety of capacities uh, to begin to, yeah, do exactly that, be the best version of yourself. So thanks for joining us, Doc. Yeah, it's good to be here. Get that book, guys. You're going to love it. And you'll learn about all these people. Yep. Amazon.com, Forge Your Inner Armor by Dr. Timothy Royer. And it is available in print 
Kindle ebook and audiobook. Okay, take care. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.